Welcome to this edition of Gabrielle Dolan's Authentic Leadership Podcast. Join Gabrielle as she speaks to well-known leaders on authentic leadership values and storytelling. The aim of this podcast is to encourage you to embrace authenticity in both the professional and personal context. The stories and experience of her guests will be a wonderful catalyst for others to learn from. So on this episode of Authentic Leadership, I've got the pleasure of sitting opposite Holly Ransom, who's the CEO of Emergent. Welcome, Holly. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Cool. Now, I think you have the most amazing global network of anyone I know. Oh, they saying something, Ralph. Thank <laughs> you. Oh, it is. And uh, because you, you're you doing a lot of work uh, moderating and facilitating conversations and panels, and earlier this year you had the... I guess would have been a highlight is is um, speaking with Barack Obama. So how did that come about? Very fortunate opportunity, um, and uh, the thanks go to Mastercard. Um, I had had the privilege of uh, doing an event uh, in the lead up to the Australian Open. Uh, in fact, uh, Tennis Australia do a brilliant gender equality forum every year on the same day as the women's semi-finals, and they brought up Billie Jean King as the Cup ambassador this year. And I had the privilege of speaking alongside Billie, which was a total life highlight in and of itself because I, I found girl hard over her. I think she's incredible. Uh, and MasterCard had seen me at that and then they had created the opportunity for the only event that Barack had done in Australia during his trip. It was sort of between New Zealand and Japan to actually have a conversation and they called and said, we'd love for you to moderate, um, but obviously you know, we've got to put up a couple of options and ultimately the president's team get to pick. Um, but they said, look, you know, we're... We're focused as a company on diversity and inclusion and, uh, you know, we want to make a really conscious choice around who who's leading that conversation. So I was very grateful for that and obviously waiting, you know, fingers and toes crossed. What did you feel when you got that email? Was oh, it like... you and I have both been doing this stuff long enough to know that you, you should never count your chickens before they yeah. hatch. You know, you get um, incredible opportunities, not of that scale, I'll admit, but um, fairly regularly that don't come off. Mm. So you learn to go, you know what, that's wonderful, um, but I'm not going to get excited about it until I know it's it's um, mine. And then I sort of got the phone call to say, hey, uh, the team want you, and, you know, we um, we need you to write 20 questions to give them a, a sense of the conversation you would you would run by the close of business today, which is probably the most I've stressed in my life, mm. um, going, I just don't want the president's team to come back with red pen through everything I've proposed to ask. But fortunately, they came back and they approved all the questions and then said, we're quite comfortable, um, you know, given your your approach for you to take the conversation where you like. We can sort of tell that you're going to keep it within the bounds of, you know, as a president, he tries to be very respectful of um, staying out of the uh, issues of the day in order to give the current president the, the right, given he's in the White House, which is what George W. Bush had done for him. Obviously, we're seeing him assert himself a little bit more in, since the around the midterms and, and subsequently... Uh, but that's sort of the approach that I guess he, he had taken. So it was sort of being mindful of those constraints. Um, and we had an incredible conversation. It was amazing for over an hour getting to sit there one-on-one uh, with one of the truly great leaders and minds, I think, of this generation, irrespective of politics. He is um, such an intelligent and considered uh, individual and he has very strong opinions on a whole variety of things and it's a privilege as an interviewer to get to talk to someone like that. Mm. How do you maybe tell us a bit about your journey because I mean you, you're quite young to be you, you, you it seems like you've got this huge success and huge network and you know you're relatively young but you know I'm I'm 51 so I think anyone <laughs> under 35 is young. <laughs> How did 
did you get into, so being recognised as, um, you know, you being the guru in all things diversity and inclusion and... What I don't know if I'd say guru, that's being generous. I think someone who's got opinions, certainly, yeah. and someone who's trying to make a, a difference in these sorts of areas. Um, I don't know really how that came about. I think it's probably just that continued every day my approach is how do I try and take you put one foot in front of the other and do a better job today than I did yesterday um, and it's always been around areas of, of passion I mean my my big passion is around um, giving voice to those who don't have sort of a, enough of one within our current system uh, and ways of doing things uh, and also just working to really ensure prosperity is a bit more equally distributed than it is right now and did that like we were, were you like that at school and uni yeah and, yeah I was I not necessarily would I have been able to put a phrase like that around it yeah. you know without a doubt um, but my interest in this whole area was peaked at 10 when when I was board shopping with my mum in a supermarket I wandered out into the street and bumped into a homeless guy that was sitting out the front on the footpath in Perth collecting money and typical you know me being the shrinking violet that I am you know wandered over to him and was like what you doing and this guy looked up at me with a grin you know going who's this you know upstart of a 10 year old and he said I'm trying to earn enough to get a roof and a feed and so the inquisitiveness in me took over and I counted what he had in his hat he had four dollars and 20 cents in his hat mostly in silver coins and I should have never said it right but if you've met a 10 year old being a 10 year old you kind of know that occasionally let one out past the keeper and I said well that's not very much <laughs> and he fortunately kind of chuckled and said nah this is actually a really good day I'm doing well and it's sort of that moment that burst the bubble you know because we we are so blessed this is such a lucky country um, but there is uh, that that can cloak a whole lot of disadvantage and struggle that is very real and present in too many communities and amongst too many um uh, too, yeah, too many uh, people within our nation right now. And so for me, it was sort of this moment of going, hold on a minute, I've got roof over my head, I've got food in my stomach, how come this guy doesn't? You know, it was bucketing with rain that night, it was the middle of winter, and I, I just felt this burning need to try and do something about that. And I think that's because my grandmother, who's the, the biggest force in my life, um, always used to say to me as a kid, didn't matter whether she was crossing the street to pick up the trash someone else had thrown on the street rather than putting in the bin or stepping in to try and encourage someone to treat someone else more respectfully than they might have been in any given moment. She would always say, Holly, if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. And I didn't realise it as a kid, but I think looking back, I go, that's such a liberating phrase to get mm -hmm. taught because it told me I didn't need to know the answer how to fix it, which I think is often what overwhelms us when we face problems. It just made it really clear that I needed to be stubborn enough <laughs> to dig my heels in and go, I'm going to ask enough questions till I can work out how I can do something. And I think that was sort of where, where it all started. Mm. It's a great insight because, yeah, too often in business, you know, we hear, you know, we hear about that don't walk past behaviours, but you sort of, you'll often have people go, well, you're not going to be able to change anything. Mm. Like you, so why bother? Mm. Um, did you have anyone like that, or did were you fully supported? You you think? Oh, I've definitely had people like that. Um, I've been very lucky to have had uh, an incredible community. I'd really describe them as of mentors. Um, not that again, from a young age, I would have known that word, mm. but I was someone that was uh, one of my mentors. Says I'm forensically curious, so I was forensically curious from a very young age. 
Um, and I was always on the hunt for people that would that would help me answer those questions. And the great, uh, one you sound like you're going to read one of those kids that always went, but why? Yeah, yeah. But why? But why? But why? But why? How? <laughs> what can we do? Yeah, hundred um, percent. And I think uh, one of the great benefits of growing up in Western Australia is it's a very flat society, and and that I mean. You could bump into the Lord Mayor on the side of the local sporting game on the weekend and they'd have a conversation with you as a 12-year-old. Mm. You know, there was never this sense of where did you go to school and, you know, what does your family do? Or, as I know, pervades some other communities. It was just this incredible sense of you could go and approach anyone. And, and that was a great advantage to me too because I did. You know, I'd go up and find people that I was interested in or I'd hear a story go, wow, how'd they do that? Mm. I wonder if they'd tell me. You know, and it just follow that line of natural curiosity. Um, and, and I was very lucky a lot of people made time. But 100%, um, I have had a good pocket of naysayers and um, detractors uh, throughout uh, my life and certainly different parts of my career for a variety of reasons. You know, be they, you know, ones in general about what young people or women are capable of doing. Uh, through to ones more specifically who have views and opinions on my views and opinions. Mm. Um, and I think you've just got to learn um, how to deal with that. That's part and parcel of um, what comes with having opinions, what comes with trying to do things in the world that are different to what's always been done. Yeah. Um, that makes it sound easier than it sometimes is to deal with. Um, so there's a reality to the way you've got to have uh, mentors and support crew in your life that can help you sometimes pick it back up when you really feel challenged by what's been thrown at you. Um, but yeah, mixed bag. Yeah, and so you you're also sort of known as your you know, I guess having the voice of the views of the younger generation. Um, again, how did that like was this, is this just all part of it giving voice to people that don't have voices? I think that's that's certainly where the passion started for me, and and when you look to uh, sort of who who despite their value despite their size etc is underrepresented or what issues there's stigma associated with that we don't talk about enough kind of naturally my early volunteer work and social enterprise work took me into um, women's issues to youth related issues um, homelessness and mental health they're probably the the big four that I spent a lot of time in uh, in my my teens and then my 20s Um, and uh, probably I mean I'd always had a very passionate belief in the importance of youth involvement I'd got involved in my youth advisory council at 14 15 got onto the local government you know youth policy working group etc um, had the opportunity to attend the 2020 summit you know and, and talk about some of those views when Rudd set that up but probably the moment that um, took me in terms of my passion and my interest levels in that um, to a whole other level was uh, the prime minister appointing me to lead the youth summit for the g20 in, in 2014 and when you looked at you know, the 1.5 billion young people across those 20 nations and how badly they were being impacted by the state of youth unemployment. I think it just drove for me um, a passion for it to a whole other level. You know, colleagues in Spain that year, 60% youth unemployment. You know, riots on the street in Paris, every G20 country with a youth unemployment rate, at least three times the adult unemployment rate. Um, and, and we know that if young people are long-term unemployed under the age of 25, that there's economic scarring. You know, that plays out as an economic disadvantage for, for decades into their life. So I think that probably for me, not only did it deepen my understanding of the challenges and the issues, um, it gave me a platform on which to do my best to, to try and advocate on behalf of better outcomes for young people. And, and we were successful in doing that through the G20. 
but it probably also made me appreciate how absent that voice and that conversation was um, from the skills and education and training conversations in business um, from obviously the employment um, conversations with government, you know, a myriad of things where I went, oh, there's probably a bigger opportunity here to try and create an awareness around the size of this generation, the significance they're going to be to our global workforce in a period of time and how unprepared we are for that transition, mm. both for the benefit that this generation will unleash, the entire new way they're going to force us to work and encourage us to work, and then the reality of some of the, the disclosure and, and the 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 kind of um, disadvantage they're starting from in many instances because they're not being trained and skilled in a way that's going to create employment opportunities for them easily. Mm. Do you, what are your thoughts? I'm seeing, um, especially recently in Australian politics with the, you know, the school kids um, uh, protesting about climate change yeah. and it's like the liberal, a lot of the liberal ministers have come out and just completely dismissed of their, of their voice of saying, you know... That's the you know, that's going to lead you to a you know the dole queue. And I, what are your thoughts on? I don't, know, I don't know how politicians need to be. They need to be listening to these voices. I think. But what are your? I think it's an alarming opinion that a number of political leaders took and and could take at any point too. That people actively participating in in democratic conversations mm-hmm. um, is is detrimental to that individual or to the collective of society. I couldn't believe. That there wasn't, look, I understand because they're on the flip side of the, the political spectrum, but to actually question the practice of getting out and making your opinions in a totally non-violent way heard, I couldn't believe that was being admonished by political leaders. I would have thought, wow, what a great sign of the health of our nation that we have young people that are so actively engaged in their issues. Because something I find myself on the defending end of all the time is, you know, why are young people so politically disengaged? We'll look at Friday's climate change march. You know, I, I challenge you to think that that many kids taking off school and marching passionately and talking so intelligently about these issues is disengaged. Look at the vote turnout for same-sex marriage last year and 18 and 19-year-olds in this country, you know, turning out to vote for an issue that they personally engaged with and, and, um, and making their voice heard on that matter. They're not disengaged. Um, they're disengaged with politics. Yeah. Why wouldn't they be? I think the whole of Australia is disengaged with what's going on in Canberra. Um, but they're not disengaged with issues. They're not disengaged from the community. They're not disengaged from the world um, that we have created and uh, the ramifications of that, you know, in the sense of climate change. So I, I think they absolutely need to be listening in general, just more broadly. I mean, they live in an insular bubble in Canberra. And I think increasingly, and, and I think the whole of Australian public's reaction to what happened with the most leadership, the most recent leadership spill is, is a testament to that. They, they don't have their finger on the pulse mm. of what's going on in the rest of the country. Yeah. We're horrified by that sort of behaviour. We feel we're an international laughing stock. Um, we're horrified by the Liberal Party treatment of women. Um, we're, we're just so disappointed by the politicking of politics. And we just wish leadership could step up a bit. Yeah, when you said the most recent leadership spill, I'm thinking by the time this podcast goes then to maybe air, another one. people could be thinking which which recent most leadership one. It's true. I'm all, so I'm also um, seeing you know the, the voice of you know the young generation um, in business as well. That if businesses aren't listening, because mm. um, it's too easy to dismiss them. But I mean, I, I've got a, um, a daughter who's 18. And I know she makes choices around social issues. So when we went shopping for her um, 
18th birthday necklace it was gold and a few diamonds we went into three shops and the first question she asked was where their gold was sourced Ethically. and where their diamonds were sourced mm-hmm. um tiffany's was one of tiffany couldn't answer her so really yeah wow. Um, and then, a company, that's well, good. maybe just the shop assistant we were speaking to, but others, you know, where they said Alex just walked out and goes, I'm not having blood on my jewellery. And you know, so part of it could be like, you can have the whole argument with her, but it doesn't, she's making choices. And, you know, we, we ended up getting, you know, a necklace from they, Australia Make. She asked, asked, they knew exactly where it was. They confirmed it. There was no conflict. Totally. Um, and this is a whole generation that will be making not only um, purchasing decisions based around this, but, but voting for our politicians. And I think if business and, and politicians aren't listening... Completely. Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting, Rowan, you've been kind enough to, to feature as a guest on my podcast, but I find it very interesting when we feature millennial CEOs and, and uh, executives. And we've had a number who've joined us from General Assembly, from Spotify, from these companies that are are built with millennial DNA. And it's really interesting having a conversation with them around values and the supply chain ethics and the way that they they will turn down multi-million dollar partnerships and have done. They've told stories of that in instances where they didn't believe it was a values fit because that needs to be safeguarded like nothing else in their business. And this is a generation who are who are coming in often to leadership off the back of um, the global financial crisis yeah. and significant failings of the corporate sector. Royal commissions. Royal commissions, but also this, this general distrust. Mm-hmm. And they're going, well, I want to work and I want to build a community and I want to contribute and be purposeful in the way that I work. And we've been empowered to, to think and work that way by baby boomer parents who've, who've brought us up to say, do what you love, follow your passion, all that sort of stuff. So it absolutely is, you're right, you know, a different generation coming through and they do want to work and lead differently and we're seeing examples of that. And I think businesses that are um, not even just waking up to that now but those that even still don't want to hear that Mm -hmm. are going to find themselves in a really difficult point not too far down the line because it's already the biggest generation in our workforce. It's going to significantly increase over the next, next eight years. Um, you know, globally it'll about double in terms of the percentage this generation will, will be by 2025. So you've got to be thinking about how you're engaging them and how you're creating a culture that allows them to um, unleash their potential. Yeah, and I think um, I think up until now, and I still see it, that a lot of corporates are giving this a bit of lip service. They're sort of going, oh, you know, but we have our corporate responsibility thing. And it was just like, no, it needs to go deeper than that because these people will just walk away from either we working for you or buying from you. Take your daughter, Alex. I mean, she's not going to be impressed by them sitting in a room saying, oh, we give, you know, uh, $20,000 to charity at the end of the year. She's going to be asking questions like, how many days a year do I get to volunteer? And what's our diversity and inclusion policy? And talk to me about how we ensure there's no slave labour in our supply chain. You know, Mm -hmm. that's the level of sophistication we're starting to talk about amongst top talent millennials. Yeah. And I think, again, you know, some some of, uh, you know, companies will go, oh, it's it's only a few of them doing it. And they'll soon realise that, you know, commercial benefits are more important than that but they won't and 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 i wouldn't build my business on that risk no and exactly (laughs) don't take that risk because they're not going away and and they're not going to give up people don't give up their values that easily you don't all of a sudden change so um 
So you've had an amazingly interesting career. We haven't even mentioned the fact that you also, you know, moderated discussions with Richard Branson as well. This is, you know, Barack Obama, Richard Branson, Billie Jean King. It's been a blast. I'm just, you know... I'm sitting at a desk and these names on the floor. <laughs> Come on. Dropping everywhere. How did you get to speak to Richard Branson? Was And was he... Well, Richard's awesome. Yeah. I really love Richard. Um, Is there anything surprised you about him speaking to him? or in, in... The thing that surprises me in the most positive of ways is... He is as furious a learner today as he must have been, you know, at the start of his career... Every time I see Richard, he has a notebook and a pen. He's always taking notes. doesn't matter who he's in a room from or who's sharing ideas. Richard is asking himself, what am I learning here? What haven't I heard before? Um, what's the new insight? What might I be able to do with this? So that ferocious curiosity mm-hmm. is a really impressive uh, habit to see. And it doesn't surprise you. When you look at the scale of the Virgin business and how many businesses they're in, when you watch his, pro- his process... The velocity of ideas, mm. uh, it, it makes sense because I, I can t- see him spitballing 100 ideas a day and then some by virtue of the fact he's always seeking inspiration and stimulation and learning. So I think that's the thing that really impresses me about him is um, it, to this day, you know, when many people would say, oh, he'd have every light to rest on his laurels and trade on his history and, you know, switched off a little bit or, or kind of come from a place of, of preaching versus listening. He's listening as furiously as he was at the start of his career. Yeah, well, that's a good insight, isn't it? Just listen more and preach less. And yeah, and the amount of ideas too it was like you know you, you know, like you look at him and you go, God, he's come up with some great business ideas, but he's probably he's come up with probably thousands and thousands more oh, than we even would be think on the floor. About. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. That they just either haven't gotten to yet, or, yeah. or didn't pass the test they ultimately put it through. But they ran the process on it. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, when you're not working, what are you doing? Uh, well, if it's footy season, watching a whole lot of footy. Right. Uh, I'm happiest when I'm, I'm getting, you know, four-plus games in a weekend. Uh, ideally, the Port Adelaide Football Club winning as well in that mix. But you watch about – you watch – If I can. Yeah, yeah, I love footy so much. I love yeah. cricket as well. Just an absolute sport nut. So uh, – and I, I got into triathlon a few years ago. So um, generally, I am running, swimming, or cycling at some point. I absolutely love it. If you told me – even five years ago that I was going to be a cardio athlete, I would have told you to wash your mouth out. Um, but I've fallen in love with it, so go figure. So either playing or watching sport and then hanging out with friends and mentors and, and um, you know, having having conversations really, mm-hmm. just quality time with, with people I love. What was, um, if you, considering you're a cricket fan, and I'm, and I'm a cricket fan too, what was your reaction to the ball tampering scandal last summer actually I actually write about that in my book as a, it was like a, a breach of trust yeah, for cricket fans what was your reaction it was. to it I th- and I think they were you know what was interesting it's another example of existing in an echo chamber I think and becoming disconnected from the um, from the broader community because I think part of what was fascinating about how that process played out was how surprised both cricket administration and cricketers were at the the, the reaction of the Australian public mm. Mm. that we were so horrified mm. that that sort of behaviour had been so blatantly engaged in um, seemed to catch everyone off guard. Uh, I think they were planning a, a um, not even a crisis management strategy, but one that was sort of a, at a very low level of, uh, of public interest. And then all of a sudden they had sort of the tsunami arrive. But I think the, the thing I would say is these sorts of things don't happen overnight. You know, that's an example of a culture that had been left unchecked for too long. And one of my favourite lines that came out in the coverage. It was from, 
want to say it was Kim Hughes, one of the former Australian captains, who said winning covers up all manner of sins in Australian yeah. sport. And I think that's what you can see. You can see a team that had been um, so successful for a period of, of time that they had been allowed to go, um, yeah, unchecked. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a consequence, a whole lot of things that weren't necessarily that bad but weren't good were tolerated. And, and this stuff happens, you know, increment by increment. Uh, you don't arrive at a place where someone's so blatantly, you know, uh, going against the, the law or the integrity of the heart of the game as, as was done in South Africa without that sort of stuff moving over time. So I think for me, um, it, it was an example of a sport that had lost its way um, relative to the, the standards of how the game should be played. Um, and I was uh, disappointed, surprised um, by the reaction from Cricket Australia. I think they're on a journey to correct for that right now, but certainly in terms of the... Um, I thought they put their, their players up deer in the headlights. They obviously, again, weren't anticipating the reaction, but, um, you know, I, I think about it, I chair our player welfare committee at Port Adelaide and we've had these conversations as sort of a, a learning um, uh, case around our, our board table. You know, putting your players up like that, you know, really saying comments they had no idea about, getting themselves in probably even deeper trouble and issues, that the player welfare situation in terms of their own mental health, that that then brought upon them in terms of the predicament they found themselves in. Um, I think there's a lot to be learnt in uh, refining or changing the crisis management process off the back of Mm. what we saw cricket do and not do um, because I don't think it was well handled Mm. by any stretch. And the fact even that it's been allowed to bleed for this long, like we've only now seen the retirement of, or sorry, the the resignation of their chairman, um, the sort of retirement of their CEO. uh, Again, it always surprised me that it was all focused on field when ultimately I take a very strong view that the boards, and I think the courts are increasingly taking this view, boards are responsible for culture. And if you've got it on a set and forget, you know, type of we've got a document somewhere in a drawer that says what our culture is and you're not watching it and actively stewarding it and ensuring that's imbued in the way everyone behaves, acts, engages, then you're in trouble. Yeah, it's 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 what you said before. I mean, it wasn't a one-off incident. It was a culture and it's, the reports have shown the Cricket yeah. Australia had a culture of win at all costs. And, and again, I, I often draw the parallels with what's happening in business and, and you know, the, the win at all costs... Yeah. And if you're winning, this behaviour becomes acceptable. Yes. And, then, you know, an isolated behaviour on its own, it's all okay. But sure. it, it goes back to, um, you know, you were saying about your, your grandmother who was like, you know, if you if you walk by it, if you let it happen, then you're saying it's okay. And I think... And you can bet your modern dollar it'll keep happening. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it just, um, it keeps happening. And again, it was, you know, underestimating the voice of the people to say we never said win at all cost culture like win but be fair about it so yeah it was disappointing it was a level of trust so so when you're not working you're 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 running triathlon watching sport i often um ask the people i interview what their um growing up in the 80s what their favorite 80s (laughs) song was and band was but i'm gonna say that you have to find a friend on that one (laughs) You were the youngest, but you know, eighties music has crossed. Generation. Oh, of course, of course. So even though you weren't born in the eighties, I'm guessing. No, no, I was not. I'm a kid not of the nineties. Kid of the nineties, right? Okay, I'm just feeling really old. Right? <laughs> what What is your favourite 
80s song oh or 80s gosh. band. You know, it's all retro to you now. It is retro. I'm trying to even think whether I'd know the difference between 70s and 80s. <laughs> I don't know. Give me some inspiration. What bands? Are, what are the, the bands of the 80s? In Excess? Oh, yeah, they're pretty awesome. Yeah, they're pretty awesome. Yeah, pretty awesome. Yep. Okay, actually, I Never Tear Us Apart plays every uh, Port Adelaide um, oh, footy yeah, game, so I have a bit of a love of that one. It gets the yeah. goosebumps going every time. I've um, randomly going into my stories now. I've, I've, on a bucket list I have is to see Billy Joel oh, in Madison Square because I love Billy Joel and I've got like every single album he's, he's ever awesome. produced. And I've been to New York several times but for some reason has not managed to see him. So he played about once a month. And so I, I had to book. I had to book my time in New York. You got there, and I, without knowing his dates, and then he released his dates, and I'm going. Awesome! So it's, it's also the only thing on the bus. So yeah, Bill, Billy Joel was one of my favourites. I love that. I, I did Benny and the Jets at a karaoke night not too recently. So big fan of <laughs> Billy Joel. There you go, Billy Joel and Benny and the Jets. Do you like cooking? Do you? I love, do. Yeah. I love cooking. Oh, excellent. What's your What's your one of your signature dishes? Do you reckon? So again, I grew up cooking because my grandma loved it. So I used to spend a lot of time in the kitchen with her. Um, I'm a baker, so I love baking mm-hmm. stuff uh, like banana breads and cakes and um, all that sort of stuff like that. And then main meal. Oh, I'll tell you what I've conquered recently: seafood paella. I love that dish. I, for a long time, feared it because I've heard it's just so overly complicated. And then um, I've, friends inspired me. They said, no, it doesn't have to be that way the other week. So I've started dabbling with a recipe for that, and, and that, that is on point. Yeah. Paella is one of my favorites. I do a so chicken good. and chorizo, though. But yeah, no, I can throw prawns. You throw prawns on the top just yeah. to keep everyone happy. <laughs> but it's, it's, it is a, once you master paella, it's, it's pretty good. Um, I just just a side question. Does your grandmother know how much of an influence she's had on you? Because it sounds like she has. I like, try and tell her a yeah. lot. I've written to her a lot over the years, and and I think um, she's such a modest woman. And I, I I think this is typical of that generation too. You know, they they don't that self indulgent stuff. You know, mm. come on. Like grandma's the the last person that'll um, you know take attention for herself she's asking everyone how they are making sure everyone else is all right and you know maybe if there's some time left over looking after herself so i don't think she believes me a lot of the time would be what i'd say uh i can think every now and again it's fed back to her that someone's been somewhere where they've heard me you know share a story about her or something like that and i I think then she goes oh no she's not just pulling my leg but uh i don't i don't think she she believes me half the time right God love her. That is our generation. So final question. If you could give one piece of advice to your 21-year-old self, what would it be? Hmm. Well, you don't even have to think back that long ago to your 21. I'm trying to think what would have had the biggest impact, though. What would have, you know... um, I would have learned how to manage my energy... Ah, earlier so I didn't learn that till I got it wrong and by that I mean it's really easy to kind of focus on managing time and to think that a successful day looks like have I been able to allocate every possible hour of it to being in 2700 meetings it can also mean that you're not conscious of the impact that different things you're doing have on you so did I feel inspired or uplifted after meeting that person or did I feel drained and um, negative or you know how is that activity versus this one what are my peak energy periods in the day and what do I want to give that peak energy to um, reading the power of full engagement was a game changer 
um, learning about you know the circadian rhythms, understanding um, much more about not only energy in and of itself and the body, but a different frame. Like their book challenged you to go. It's not about a marathon. Life is a series of sprints. Mm. We need to think about and um, on a productive downtime. Like when you and I were chatting offline earlier, you were sort of saying, next year I'm going to bring back lazy. <laughs> yeah, um, because everyone's so bloody busy. That's all they talk about. We wear it like a badge of honour. You know, these guys would say, you've got to think about productive downtime because mm. if all you ever are is on, how, how does that last without just continually going through these cycles of burnout? So for me, I, I probably wish I'd latched onto that concept earlier because it's been a complete life changer. Yeah, well, you've latched onto it earlier than most people do, um, especially I see in the corporate world. You know, we, we talk about mental health. I think one of the big big issues around mental health is burnout in the yeah. corporate world and it's not seen as such because we spend a lot of time managing our diaries mm-hmm. and managing our time. And um, I think great advice. The sooner you learn to manage your energy, it, it has such... Um, immediate impact on you and the people around you but long long yeah your longevity as well holly it's been a pleasure thank you for being part of this podcast and um, i look forward to following your success as you go through your career thank you i appreciate it we hope you have enjoyed this podcast in the authentic leadership series Visit the resource library on Gabrielle's website to access a collection of free material on business storytelling and thought leadership.